Hey, Pickle. Hey, Pickle. Welcome to The Mixer. The Mixer is going to be our interview string of episodes, a mini series, as we can get in folks for interviews. It's going to be a really good time. This episode for our very first one, who do we have, Pickle? We have the highly acclaimed and beloved Marcus D. (gasps) Don't know how we managed to get that one. I know, it's so cool. You guys know Marcus D and his music predominantly from Absolute Zero and Silica Valley, although he does make his way into Neon Heat occasionally as well, but amazing music. A triumph of vibes. His music is primarily hip-hop, Japanese jazz fusion. Uh, My words, not his words. (laughs) But it's very soulful and amazing. We're just so excited to have had the chance to speak with him and bring that content to you guys here. I don't think one genre can contain him. It wouldn't dare. Mm-mm. Couldn't. Wouldn't. So why don't we do our little thank yous up front? Because uh, there won't be an outro on this one. We're going to just cram it all right up here for you. Wham cram. Thank you, ma'am. You can find Marcus D at Marcus D on Twitter and at MarcusD.net. That's where all his Bandcamp goodies are. Plenty of albums. Just like, why don't you just get his whole discography while you're at it? Pretty great. It's, it's very reasonably priced for the amount of content you're getting. Yeah. He can also be found on Spotify, although if you'd like to support him as an artist, the best way to do it is through Bandcamp. And especially on Bandcamp Fridays, which is generally the first Friday of the month. All proceeds on Bandcamp Friday go directly to the artist. So Bandcamp doesn't take their cut. That means he's getting literally all of the money one for one. The maximum amount of cash. Max cash. That's an aspirant. (laughs) Max cash, you son of a bitch. Uh, as far as on our end, I have a couple patrons that I'd like to thank, including Michael, Chase, Valentine, and Ezra. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, you guys, so much. We hope you like this different new form episode. We had a lot Especially of fun. during season break. Yeah. Are there some other folks that we should be thanking? Marshall, Caleb Sunstead, Jackie, Davriel, Zach, Ben Hatton, and Paxton. Thank you all so much for being here and for supporting us. and. We hope you enjoy the content as well. I like how your eyes sparkled as you said that. It doesn't translate very well to an audio medium, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. You can find us online at rpgforyouandme.com. You can find us at patreon.com slash rpgforyouandme if you'd like to support us that way. That also gets you access to the patron-exclusive Discord server at $2 a month and at the $5 a month tier and up you get the secondary bonus feed, which has all of Absolute Zero, all of Silica Valley, a bunch of other side campaign stuff we've done, outtake reels, content that Allie's put together. It's just really good. And then higher tiers up from there, we have physical merch as well as a merch store, wooden regulator badges, Benny sets and collections. Postcards. Postcards and more. Mm-hmm. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at RPG for you and me or myself at UC the Hat. All right, y'all. That's all the housekeeping. Here we go. It's interview time with Marcus Marcus D. D. Well, just up front, is there anything that you'd like to tell the audience about yourself? Starter info, folks who have been listening to this should have heard of you because you're in a lot of our episodes. Yeah, I mean, I'm a producer from originally from Seattle or a little bit south of the actual city of Seattle and lived in Seattle for about 10 years. And I currently live in Japan where I've been since permanently since 2016. 
And I'm a beat maker, producer, musician, composer, all of that kind of uh, music related things. Been playing music since I was a kid. I started making beats when I was 16 in high school because a lot of my friends needed music. They're like, hey, you play the piano. You know how to make beats, right? So I took it upon myself to figure it out. And now, 17 years later, it's taken me across the entire world to a bunch of different countries, almost all the continents except two. And I have a you know lifelong dream that I'm fulfilling and um, able to make a living off of. So I'm extremely grateful and try to be conscious of that every single day that I um, try to make music, you know. What inspired your move? That's a big one. Yeah, it was actually. And even bigger than like I actually realized at the moment, my subconscious understood it, but I didn't. Um, I'll go into that a little bit later. But, um, <laughs> I the, the reason that I originally decided to move um, was because of the fact that rent was going up like crazy in Seattle. There was a lot of Amazon, we call them transplants in the beginning, Amazon, Amazon transplants coming in and moving to Seattle. So Seattle was starting to look a lot different in around 2015, 16. And then from then on, it completely changed. So much to the point that when I go back home now, I don't really recognize it. And a lot of the places I used to frequent and hang out for, you know, better part of 10 years are just gone or kind of like shadows of what they used to be. There's actually like an Instagram um, account called Vanishing Seattle, and they document all of the things that are, you know, have gone under or are no longer there. So rent was pretty bad. I wasn't making almost any money off of as far as being able to live off of it in a place like that, where you're spending, you know, even back then it was like twelve, thirteen hundred for like a room, not even in downtown Seattle that I was sharing with two of my friends. And it was really expensive. And then trying to buy even groceries or anything past paying rent was really not feasible anymore. So I had an opportunity to go to Japan and I took it and things were a lot you know, cheaper there as far as living situation, thanks to a couple of friends. So that's how it started out. It was just kind of, I knew that I needed to move my career in a, a forward direction instead of just staying where I was at. And I felt like Seattle was not, I guess, really nurturing or recognizing anything that I was doing. So yeah, I decided to take it elsewhere and it worked. You took a leap and it paid off. <laughs> Indeed. What was the opportunity that came up that allowed you to move to Tokyo or to Japan specifically? At the time, so the first time that I went to Japan was 2010 for the passing of Nujibes. I went there mm -hmm. for his tribute show. I was originally going there with my label to record a song with Sai Star called Greater Purpose. And we recorded that the the day, actually the morning that we finished the show, we went straight to the studio after the show at like 5, 6 a.m. and recorded that song. That was kind of the my initial step into Tokyo as far as why I was out there in the first place. And I met a lot of people at that show. I had actually met with Shingo too before I went over there and he had asked me if I was interested in DJing a couple songs for him. And I think I was like 18 at the time and I was really, really wet behind the ears and you know had no idea what i was doing but he kind of took a chance on me 
Yeah, I made a lot of connections and then I ended up going back there in 2011 for a tour. And then I went back in 2013 to live there for a year. Um, I went to Sofia University, located in Tokyo and um, Yotsuya. So that was where I got a little more acquainted with being there for longer than like a couple weeks at a time. And that was where it kind of opened my eyes to what Japan really was. And then the opportunity to move over there came from the people that I had met while I was there for school. You said it really opened your eyes to what Tokyo was. Is that that's probably not something that's easily summarized, but what were some of the main differences that appealed to you or that really captured your imagination about being there? It's just such a completely different world. Even when I'd been there for a week, I was like, you can't even begin to comprehend what's going on. You're just kind of like, ooh, ah. And everything that you see is just, it's like sensory overload, but in like the best way possible. So you can't really even take in everything in just like a two, even a two to three week trip. And you're still completely infatuated and like culture shocked. So when I was living there, I was able to, you know, kind of start to understand things a little better about just everyday life. The everyday life was really kind of, it was difficult, but you were never really bored ever. There was always something to do. And like the city is so like fast paced and can be very stressful, but there's a lot of opportunities and there's always something going on and people are moving and, you know, hustling and, there's just a lot of things going on at all times, which gets tiresome if you like to have, you know, downtime or if you don't want to be, interact with people or if you need your space, because space is definitely at a premium here. So just being able to see, like being able to observe the culture while being part of it was the biggest thing for me as far as starting to understand, like the very beginning, just the very tip of starting to understand what Japan was like. Um, and how different it is from, you know, American culture and Western culture in general. So that was very eye-opening for me and kind of inspired me a lot, inspired a lot of my music at the time. Kind of just kept me interested and, in you know, I still am interested and it's still holding my focus, which is why I'm still here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, overall, it's just, you know, that was definitely like my first look at a different culture even, you know, because could be the same anywhere else, but for me, it was Japan. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Times Remembered has that mm. very romantic big city vibe as far as songs are concerned or the way I interpreted it. Did you write that after moving or was that before? Was it just stuff you had you were working on or? That was stuff that definitely stuff that I was working on. I believe that I found some of the first um, samples and melodies for that while I was in Tokyo. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when that would have been because I, I believe that I made most of those songs in 2015, 2014 and 2015, I think. And at that time, I was I was back living in Seattle. That was the time when I was starting some of those tracks and I was living with my friends and there was a point where we were drinking like scotch at like 2 p.m. in the <laughs> afternoon and just being complete degenerates uh, <laughs> and it reminded me of you know kind of like the the old 50s and 60s and those times when there were less ideas about you know what you should be doing at what or I guess what what men should be doing at 2 p.m. on 
weekdays. Right. <laughs> of course, all kinds of ideas what women should be doing um, during those times. But for men, it was kind of up in the air. It's like, just, you know, do whatever you want. And have some porch whiskey. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it was, you know, it was a, it was definitely during the summer where most of that came together, kind of caught like a certain moment and a vibe that I tried to do as many, you know, tracks as I could that felt like that, that felt within that theme. And it seems like every time that I'm able to catch like a theme or like a, like catch a feeling in a moment, that's usually when the best music comes out because it's just it's like capture. It's like a picture, you know. You yeah. Just capture a moment in time, and um, that was why I named it that. Music's like a time machine. You know, it takes you back, and you remember, and it's incredible. Exactly, and that was kind of what that was for me, as far as I can remember the way that I felt and what I was doing when I made those tracks. Well, that kind of answers a question I'd written down uh, feverishly at 4 a.m. last night. <laughs> <laughs> So I was going to ask if you compose your songs with a story in mind up front or if they're more like snapshot vignettes of like a vibe or emotion. So it sounds like, at least for those songs, they're just these beautiful little snapshots in time. Yeah, for those ones there were, you don't really realize it at the time, to be honest. It's only afterwards that it's done. And I think after people listen to it and you see the reaction that people have and the way that they interpret it and what it means to them and see if that was the same thing that you had in mind is how I tend to look back on it and see if it did what I was hoping it would do. Because a lot of times music is just it's throwing a bunch of different darts at the board and seeing what sticks. And for me, a lot of times the stuff that I don't really like or that I'm like, you know, it's okay is the stuff that people really, really like and want me to do more of. But with that project, I really liked that. And I knew that it was good and I was confident about it. That one was was one of the ones where I was like, I, I have an idea of where I'm going with this. And that was more of catching those moments that you live and then you hope that you can get it into an expression or like an art form because that's really all that art is is just trying to capture inspiration and moments and then crystallize them you know in time and so people can go back and wonder what that person was thinking when they made it and then what that piece of art means to them in the moment that they consumed it or you know saw it for the first time a, a slight tangent in the i i do a lot of drawing and a lot of editing and i'm a person that I will hyper focus on a song if it catches my ear just right and I'll just I'll just loop it for like hours at a time and just kind of get lost in the sauce. But I know that a song really has me when I start imagining anime music videos to the characters <laughs> that I'm currently drawing. And Pain and Possibility gets me every goddamn time. I'm just like, "Oh god, I'm feeling so much right now." That's a great track. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That was one that I, I think when I made it, I was actually like tearing up and it meant a lot to me. Mm. And that really comes through as a listener for sure. Thank you. That means a lot. Melancholy Hopeful is is my favorite album by far. Uh, just every every track, instrumental specifically, I love instrumental music, but the entire album is just full of very powerful emotional tracks for me. 
I mean, we've talked a lot about how the music can capture a feeling or a snapshot in time, and one of the best things, for me at least, about instrumental music is that it doesn't come with the lyrics that carry the additional meaning, so we get to superimpose our own feelings and thoughts on it. And it's very applicable in a personal manner to what's happening in our life, and we all view it through different filters there, so it's really interesting to be able to hear you talk about it in a similar way that way. But you also mentioned that some of the songs people really like you didn't care for quite as much or weren't as moving to you. Is there like one particular album that really resonates with you more personally than other ones or one one album that you're more proud of for that reason? Um, that's actually a very good question. Um, I think that... Picking your favorite child, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it tends to be, um, for me, like I know the ones that I like better then yeah, like I, I like them all because I, there's no way that I would put something out at the time that I didn't like. But when I go back to certain things, there's one I'm like, eh, you know, it's cool for what it was. But I guess that's how I've tried to live my career is more of as of like a, you know, moments of my life mm-hmm. and things that I was into when I was creating that album, because a lot of them have themes and a lot of those themes come from my interests at that time. Like, you know, in the very beginning with Revival of the Fittest, I was really into, you know, super underground, independent label rap and hip hop and local Seattle rap and hip hop. So there's a lot of that on there. Mm-hmm. And then next with Shoshin, I was in college, I think my first year of college, and I was studying philosophy and Asian studies um, and silver screen cinema. So there was a lot of East, Asia, Southeast Asian, and a lot of just different Asian cinema that I was watching that had a lot of themes of Buddhism, um, Shintoism, and just overall Asian aesthetics. So I got, at that time, I was very deep into like the beginner's mind as far as trying to think of yourself as always a beginner, that you haven't learned anything. Because if you're always learning, your growth never stops. But if you've begin to think that you've attained something or that you are an expert at something, then that's all there is, you know? You, you've you've learned everything, you've mastered it in your mind, and therefore that's where your growth stops. So at that time, you know, there were a lot of philosophical things that I was studying and growing myself as a, an adult, becoming an adult. So every project kind of just captures that moment of what I was working on and what my interests were at that time, usually. Um, other times I just put out music because I like it and I think it's, you know, it's good. But going back to your question, I really don't. I think Melancholy Hopeful also is one that it captured like the perfect essence of what I was going through at that time. And I think the reason that it resonates with a lot of other people too is that it also captured what a lot of people at that time were also going through where it was hip hop. If you, you know, if people were listening to it when it came out, there was a large transition between like jazzy hip hop, quote unquote, and then into kind of like what we're, we have now with like lo-fi hip hop and beats and stuff. And that was right after Nujibes had passed away. And there was kind of like a void for that music and people wondering what was going to happen next. And I think that at that moment, there was just a lot of people wondering, you know, what kind of music is going to come from this and where are we going to go next? So. Yeah, I think the Melancholy Hopeful is probably my uh, my favorite project because of what it means to me and the picture that it paints. But there's one project that I really liked called Sector 5, 
That was only like three tracks. So oh, I of, love Sector, Sector 5. Five really good. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to hear that because it, it didn't really do anything. Like, I don't think anybody really noticed that. I, I felt like nobody really noticed it. You know, I know there's certain people who listen to it, but I really like I had a lot of fun with that. And it was I made like two other tracks for it that I didn't put on the project because I didn't think they were up to par with the other ones. But that was kind of just the picture of like my neighborhood at the time. Uh, if and <laughs> I mean, actually, what was happening was I had come up with that idea of like a kind of uh, cyberpunk post-apocalyptic JDM racer from my neighborhood. And that was kind of like the cover. Then little did I know that well, I think it was four months later, three months later, there would be an actual like pandemic that, you know, did completely change the world. And, you know, I, I had it as more of like a a virus that decimates the entire world, but I'm glad it didn't get to that point. But when we were going through it, I was like, holy shit, this is like, <laughs> am I a prophet? <laughs> I remember, I think I saw a tweet from you a while back that was like, Ugh, did I predict <laughs> this? this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really creepy for a second because I, I it, you know, it matched up perfectly with it. And like the album literally came out March 2020, which you know, with all of the stuff that you have to do to be able to get the release out by then, it, there's no way that it would have been able to, you know, that I could have seen it happening and then made it based on that. You know, it had to have been at least three to four months prior. And I was working with my brother when I went home back to Seattle for Christmas in 2019 on the idea for like the cover and the theme for everything. And also my friend Eddie was also giving me ideas for the diagrams and the prototypes for the cover and everything. So to see that kind of start happening and then see like also my neighborhood start turning to the point where like people were just non-existent. Like it was like a ghost town for the first month in March and it got really kind of like real. And that's when I was, I had been making the tracks in October of that, of that previous year and then finished everything and then put it out in March. And then I was like, wow, <laughs> this is art imitates life or does life imitate art? And... Yeah. We're in Pennsylvania and mm. our entire state got pretty much locked down hard for a month or two at the start of the pandemic. And Sector 5 had just dropped. And I was like, guess I'm going to lose myself in this for several weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but like it, it felt like a ghost town even here when we were out and driving around and Doug had to go yeah. into the office a couple times to like pick up work to bring home and stuff. And I was like, what's it like out there? Do people still dance? <laughs> it was crazy driving on the roads. There were there was just nobody out there. I mean, I would sometimes be the only car on the road. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. The first one that I had at the very top was what inspired you to get into making music? Very early on, you'd mentioned that when you were maybe hmm. 16, your friends had sort of come to you and said, hey, you know how to play the piano. So maybe stepping a, a little bit further back then, mm -hmm. was the piano your first real instrument? Like, how did you get into music to begin with? Definitely was. I am, you know, was lucky enough to have a grandmother whose father bought her a piano for the family. Like when they had, I think this had to have been during the depression, they had like zero money but my grandmother wanted to play piano no matter what. And 
They got her this really cheap, upright piano they kept in the family for years. And I still have that. And that was what I actually learned on. So my grandmother stored it at my parents' house and it was downstairs. Nobody had touched it for years. They're keeping it, hoping that somebody would play it. My brother never played it. He decided to play guitar. He wanted to be, you know, a rock star and stuff like that. So I was playing Final Fantasy IV yes. and I heard the prelude. And this this was like, I was really young because I think it, I don't know if it had just come out, but it was pretty new to the point where my my brother's friend had been playing it and I was watching him play it. And then I went downstairs and tried to figure out the notes. And by the end of the day, like I had parts of the prelude put together and was playing it. And my, my mom came into the, you know, the other room and like, well, I think we have to get him piano lessons now. Um, <laughs> so I started playing piano when I was maybe in second or third grade. I was never really like serious about it, unfortunately, mostly because a lot of the classical stuff that all of the instructors and then also school teachers wanted you to play um, did not interest me at all. Me at all. Oh, it's so boring. I don't want to play hot cross buns again. <laughs> Please. <laughs> it's really boring. And I just wanted to play songs that I had heard before. Mm -hmm. And the only songs that I was hearing at that time were Final Fantasy songs and some small forms of like popular jazz music. So I kind of went from that to taking lessons and then I got to the point where I could finally read music and I would pick the music. I had a really, really great teacher. Um, shout out to Miss Milgard, Jan Milgard. She taught me piano for a long time. And when I had something that I wanted to play, um, she just told me to bring the book with me. If I could buy the book, bring it with me, she'd teach me how to play it. So that's kind of how we went with it so it was really it's kind of new age back then as far as like a piano teacher just letting their student you know their, their pretty young student pick which songs they wanted to learn that's so cool though yeah. it's so encouraging because you have a lot of the uh you know like uh what's it called um like a lot of the materials already chosen for kids from certain ages to certain ages and levels and levels so and I had a very similar experience where my family had uh, a piano. And uh, when I started expressing interest in music, I think, you know, stereotypically, it was like, I will play the drums for no real reason that I can remember. Mm -hmm. And my dad was like, well, no, you, you need to learn to play a real instrument with an octave scale first before I'll let you do that, which, you know, is like, mm, OK, um, which was probably more of a reason to not have a drum set in, that, in the house with, oh, you know, definitely. a kid who is going to bang yeah. on it, which I can understand. As an adult, I get it. Yeah, as an adult, I get definitely. it. So I, I did take piano lessons, but my experience was very similar in that, you know, I was presented with all the material that I was supposed to play. Video games were and remain my number one hobby mm -hmm. and pastime. So like all of the music that I was interested in were from video games. But my teacher didn't understand any of that. And I didn't really have a frame of reference to communicate that right. to her. So I, I kind of petered out because I got disinterested with what was happening. And my mom, bless her, I think at one point got me a 
the music of Final Fantasy IX, maybe, book. Oh, and I, I didn't know it. that. Yeah, and I, I forgot about it until right now. That's so sweet. But awesome. I opened it up and looked at these extravagant, insanely <laughs> complex, you know, notes and chords and stuff. It was just like, uh, I don't even know how to read this. So I don't think that ever went anywhere, unfortunately. You were like, octave scale. At the octave. That's awesome, because I had that book, too. And oh, that's that, great. That was, yeah, actually, that's awesome. that was actually one of the books that I brought to my teacher and was like, I want to play this one this week. And I learned, I learned from the Final Fantasy IX book. It, that was definitely a game that came out while I was in probably high school or middle school. No, middle school. Yeah. And it was when I was like sixth or seventh grade, fifth grade, maybe. Awesome, man. Yeah, I'm 34 now, so it's uh, okay. Yeah, it so sounded I'm, like we were very. I'm, th I'm 33, so yeah. That's... <laughs> oh, dude, happy belated birthday! You too. You too. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, hearing that one of your first forays into music was Final Fantasy IV because that was that's one of my favorite games. I love Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy VI is probably mm -hmm. my favorite Final Fantasy. But yep, that's that's where I live, man. All of my, I just like <laughs> I can't push forward. It's it's kind of a bad thing, but like there's just this nostalgia in me where every time that I start feeling some kind of way, like usually it's like during Christmas for some reason. I want to play Final yeah. Fantasy X. Yeah, well, it came out in like October, November, didn't it? Uh, so I that, got that it must, right that Christmas, must be so. it. That must be it then. Like, I have that same feeling though. I get that. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's a seasonal urge. Like every summer, I'm like, I should play Bioshock again. <laughs> <laughs> it's that season. <laughs> I feel you. I I'm like a huge fan of four, six, uh, nine, ten. I like eight a lot too. A lot of people don't like eight, but eight's a sleeper for some of the mechanics. But like it. It's it has so with much the, heart. With yep. the, oh, the the hot librarian with the whip. Quistus. <laughs> Quistus, thank you. Quistus. Yep. I'm telling you. Pe people don't appreciate Quistus. Quistus was they great. Don't. She seems nice. A yeah. blue mage with the with the library thing going and a whip. And she's she's like, a, in Japanese, they, they call it tsundere, which means like. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure people. Actually, that's crazy. People probably know now because of anime and stuff. But she's hot and cold yeah. and. That was way ahead of its time for like Americans, for sure. She mean, but she's sweet it though. Was, yeah. Right. I had a very similar piano experience to you in that I, I came a little late to video games because I didn't have, I got my first system was a Game Boy Advance in like second grade. So I, I missed a lot in the, the young, young years. But one of the first games I borrowed from my cousin and then bought both versions of for myself was uh, Mega Man Battle Network 5. Uh -huh. And I loved the theme song so much that we had this like super shitty Casio electric keyboard. Not all the keys even worked, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I like went note by note and I tried to figure it out and I was like maybe I could do piano and I didn't but <laughs> but <laughs> Battle Network 5 is a very near and dear to my heart game and they did release a one for the DS that has both versions of the game which I need to get back into because it's it's very fun <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge Mega Man Mega Man X fan I, Mega Man X yes Mega Man X is definitely like my like if, if it wasn't like JRPGs it, it would be all Mega Man X like all the theming, the bosses, the upgrades, the power fantasy. It's super is it Armored cool. Armadillo? Armored Armadillo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Armadillo. Man, his theme slaps. Yep. It's so good. That whole first, the whole first like game, the soundtrack is just on a different level. That's like the prime, you know, Japanese musician era when they were just like, what the 
fuck were these guys thinking? And they just went off. And it's, it's so cool because like, you know, they were all rock musicians that just got hired to do certain songs back then and work for different companies. And same with um, Mystic Quest. I don't know if yeah, anybody okay. knows about that, but that I guy know. that guy was also the sound. The composer was also a kind of hair rock, punk rock kind of dude from back okay, then, yeah. from the 90s, late 80s. And that's why that that soundtrack slaps so hard. So yeah, I'm, I, I love all those kind of just like 90s Super Nintendo soundtracks that have like the kind of rock hard rock themes and stuff very influential in this household as well <laughs> awesome okay well that that's a good segue because we certainly have questions about video game related stuff and from okay. you know obviously from your music and a lot of the tracks like retro retro 2 mm-hmm. there's a lot of influence there and some recreations so because we're specifically talking about final fantasy mm-hmm. you just kind of answered that by listing off some of your favorite final fantasies I, actually, I don't want to steal Allie's question. You had a, a very particular question about RPGs. Oh, yeah, I did. Okay, so if you were in, like, your own RPG mm-hmm. and you could pick three party members from any game, who do you think you would pick? Man, come on with the hard ball questions. <laughs> I know. We talked about that beforehand, and I sat there for five minutes. <laughs> you were like, I don't even know a video list, game character. Creating apparently. a master list to choose from. I mean, what does one gauge his his answer on? Physical prowess, <laughs> ability, the to personal banter, preference, ability, yeah. to, ability to banter well with villains. It's, it's a three party member. Uh, three, three or more. If, if you'd you like have to more. expand it, oh yeah, no, we, no we, 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 we got to make requirements because otherwise I'll, I'll just I'll mm. go off. So well, I'll stick with three. Okay. okay. <laughs> I want to hear the runner ups though. Okay, I'll give you some runner ups. I think that like first off, I'd have to go with Shadow from Six Final Fantasy Six. Ooh, okay, yeah. He's like the perfect kind of, he just comes and goes. You know, like I wouldn't have to deal with him all the time. You pay him for his services, so, you know, he doesn't take anything that is going to be yours or anything like that. Seems pretty loyal as long as you're paying him. We'd slit his mama's throat for a nickel, right? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So at least you know where he stands, you know. And he's got a cool dog that, you know, comes and jumps in every now and then. Interceptor. Interceptor. Just having a German Shepherd and a ninja that is an assassin i think you gotta go with shadow so he's probably first just like that comes straight to mind i think second would be mages from chrono trigger Ooh, that's a good answer yeah he's he was always one of my favorite so cool. sleeper characters yeah like just i always I'm a, I'm a sucker for the bad guy that goes good yeah i love the anti-hero he was one of the first characters, like, in an RPG that, spoilers if you've never played character, <laughs> yeah. uh, was, like, touted as the main antagonist for most of the game, and uh-huh. then you could recruit into your party. And that blew my freaking mind. Like Bowser in Super Mario RPG. Exactly. And, and, so, and, yeah. and where do you think they got it from? They definitely took that from Chrono Trigger. <laughs> nice. It's, it's true. It came out, like, a year or two after that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. It's genius. And, you know, I, I just love the... You know, May just wasn't really a bad guy. And that's the coolest thing about Chrono Trigger for me is that you see how time and perspective can change what other people's opinions are and the way that it, that things are put into perspective and the way that things mm-hmm. are framed. It's all yeah. about how you see things. And at that time, he seemed bad because he was, you know, interfering with what you were trying to do. 
but people who didn't understand, you know, that what you were trying to do and what he was trying to do, he was trying to save things from the beginning, you know, and make it so that it didn't happen to start with. So it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, understand that somebody like that is also, you know, his motives line up with yours, but because of that certain point in time, it looks like, you know, they're enemies. So that was really always really cool to me. You get to go to 10,000 BC where you see him as a little kid, like mm -hmm. a prince basically, in this utopian magic society, gets catapulted through time into the fucking dark ages and then becomes the warlord of this group of monsters to lead them against the ultimate evil of the universe. Like, it's hell. Yeah, he's fucking badass. It's, like, mages, come on. Dude. It's one of the best games ever, in my opinion, if not the best. So, definitely mages. Yeah. Mages. I, I was going to go with either mages or. Um, Keru, uh, Kaide, which is you know, frog. Um, oh, yeah. Cause frogs just, he's, he's, he's honorable and he's super cool, but I go, I'll go with Magus and then I got to move on to the next game. And I'm trying to think of what, cause I know I'm going to miss one. I'm, I'm like, later on, I'm going to be awake at night being like, damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like your friends, you forgot to give call outs to your shout outs to. Yep. Next time you're replaying, you're like, I'm oh, so sorry. Okay, I got it. Uh, Kane from Final Fantasy IV, for sure. Yes. The original Dragoon, the armor, the spear, the moody backstory, the guy who's forced to be an antagonist. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. It was, you know, either him or Cecil. And, but I don't, I don't have any healing in my party. So we're basically just like straight tank DPS attack. So if we if we, if we get hit, it's not gonna be easy. So we got mages to nuke things down. You got shadow to throw stuff from a distance or just disappear when things get bad. Kane can jump and get untargetable. So right. really, it's just down to you to carry everything else. Mages, I guess. I'll, I'll learn white magic. We'll be good. Wonderful. So those are those are my three. I'll stick with those for now. But I'm confident with my choices though. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I've been peripheral to Doug playing a lot of Final Fantasy games. Mm. The only one that I've begun to play myself, not due to lack of interest, but just like the time investment to play a Final Fantasy at as mm. this this point in my adult life is right. hefty. I was I started playing Final Fantasy VII when they released it on the Switch like mm. years ago, and I just got like to the airship bit, so I've still got a ways to go. But fuck Cat Sith. <laughs> <laughs> All Fuck my homies hate cats. <laughs> He's I like, oh, I'm going to sacrifice you. It's going to be so beautiful. You remember me. And then he shows up. Hey, I'm Cat Sith too. And Reeve's just like at a computer console like the <laughs> fooled you. Yeah. I'm like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> asshole. Yeah. After betraying you and causing the death of your friends, basically. Mm-hmm. The jerkwad. I'm pretty like I'm pretty vocal about it on Twitter, but I hate Final Fantasy VII. Expand on that. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I, I get a lot of hate for it, and I like that's kind of why I'm so vocal about it because sometimes it's just, <laughs> you know I'm a little brother and I like to antagonize things a little bit. <laughs> but for your you booze know. sustain me. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I like I think that first off it, it's it's like super overrated just because of the fact that it's purely based on people's love for it is purely based on like the nostalgia as far as it coming out and being the very first JRPG that ever was big in the United States. So a lot of for a lot of people in the States, that was their intro to any mm -hmm. JRPG ever, which is kind of 
a travesty because JRPGs have been around for so long before that and so many good ones were around before that. And Final Fantasy VII tends to get like, you know, all of the the treatment as far as being like, let's make a movie about it. Let's, you know, make a new HD remix of it. Let's make an entire new PS4 game about it. Like everything that ever gets remade is Final Fantasy VII. And it feels like the company plays favorites because of the overseas enamorment with it. And for some reason, it just kind of irks me as far as like, I, I liked the game. And when I played it, you know, I replayed it recently. I was like, I, I still like this game. So it's a good game, but it's just not as good. I don't think it's as good as everybody makes it out to be. I think there are better Final Fantasies in the, the series by far. I don't even think it's like the third or fourth best in the I series. I mean, you can't even suplex a train in that one. So. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, where's the originality? I I'm actually so I I do love Final Fantasy 7 but I'm actually very much in that same camp because after the remake came out I played the remake loved the remake and mm -hmm. I I cried at the beginning of the remake because mm -hmm. that launched like a month into pandemic right and much like you said Final Fantasy 7 was like my first real JRPG mm -hmm. you know I, I my parents had never gotten me a console before the original PlayStation so mm -hmm. Final Fantasy 7 I was introduced to the concept by a friend of mine in elementary school who had it. And he's like, oh, man. And he was playing uh, the demo version that came on like a right. demo CD. Right. I was like, oh, man, you got to play this game. It's so cool. There's like this dude with a machine gun arm and you can like summon this giant fire demon and he like comes out of your soul. Right. And he like <laughs> and I was like, this sounds pretty cool. So I got it and uh, I fell in love with you know, the concept of a JRPG because it's literally just an in-depth anime story. And that was my first real for anime as well. But after playing it as an adult, like the remake was fun, mm -hmm. but I went back to play the original and I blasted through it because I, I've replayed it many times and I still remember where everything is. So like mm -hmm. there was no real resting in the story. I just kind of played through it. And I was shocked to find that like, I got through the bulk of the main story in like 25 to 30 hours when yeah, you my really first playthrough <laughs> was like 80 to 90, just seeing the world and stuff. Right. And it was still good and the storytelling was fine, but a lot of it was, I was like, okay, you know, this has been done and I've seen this before. So like, what's kind of fresh and new about this? And a lot of the character development just wasn't as strong as I had remembered it. Exactly. The voice acting, it lent a lot in the remake. Like Aerith, yeah. oh my gosh. Aerith and Tifa both came Whew. through in, in such amazing ways in the remake that like Aerith specifically was vibrant and alive in the remake in a way that she really was never in the original. She oh, was yeah. a pretty like low key character. I don't know. It just. She's, yeah, I don't remember. She's very dollish. Yeah. I am excited for the remainder of the remake stuff. I don't think they need to draw it out as much as they have. Oh, they're gonna. <laughs> I, they're gonna, and I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna be happy playing it because I love I love different twists on familiar stuff, and I'm just a basic bitch like that. Um, so I'm, I'm more excited for the remake because they can flesh out these characters and these stories more. But Final Fantasy VI has always been my favorite because, spoilers, if you've never played Final Fantasy VI, you fucking lose halfway through the game. <laughs> like, the villain wins and destroys the entire world. And then the second half of the game is picking up the pieces in this post-apocalyptic wasteland to just Jeez. salvage these dredges of hope to pull it together and go back and try again. Six is the one genius. with Kefka, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, oh my god, completely it was a revelation. Genius. Yeah, completely genius. And that's... 
that's something that seven, like as good of a game as it is, is not coming anywhere near. It's not touching it. And like that kind of character development, when you have that many characters, and I care more about like one of the middle important characters mm -hmm. more than I care about the main characters in Final Fantasy VII. I really was like, when Aerith died, I was like, dang, that's sad. But it wasn't like something where I was like, oh God, no, not Aerith. Like she's, you know, my favorite character. It was never anything like that. Like if, when, when Shadow, spoilers again, if you don't save Shadow on the floating continent in six, he doesn't come back. He dies. That's he does, the, yeah. it's the oh same exact thing. It's just not mm -hmm. him getting stabbed in the back in an FMV sequence on a PlayStation, you know, one disc with polygons. So it's not as important. And, and, <laughs> and dead and, eyes. You know, so it's just, I think that the company has forced Final Fantasy VII to be this amazing game that it never really was. And I think that they've mm -hmm. tried to make it live up to, you know, these kind of unattainable standards where now it's all just based on nostalgia. And, you know, I'm just one person saying how I feel, but I, I don't think I'm wrong. Like, I think that it's all, you know, very much been decided by the company that this yeah. was marketable. So therefore, we're going to hit it as hard as we can for as long as we can, because the music itself, too, there are some very cinematic and memorable songs in there but i don't think that it's even anywhere in uematsu's top five best soundtracks of any video game he's ever done i i love the genova theme personally it's probably my favorite final fantasy 7 mm. track but it's a, a good terrorist theme in six is like one of my favorite like there's, the main final fantasy so six many theme. other good songs and so and so many like other soundtracks as holes that are much better than final fantasy 7 they repeat you mm -hmm. know the main theme of Final Fantasy VII over and over and over and over again throughout the entire game. It's just medleys. They're like, did you forget about it? We didn't. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I know they were trying to make it more like a movie because they were able to do things more cinematically. And that was the approach that they had. And it's still a good game. I just don't think it's as good as people think it is. And I think they have rose tinted glasses on when playing and looking at that game. I, I could talk about Final Fantasy for hours, and I'm going to continue talking about it for, for a little bit longer. Just to throw this out there, are you familiar with the popular fan theory? Maybe, I don't know how popular it is now, for Final Fantasy VIII, spoilers, that at the end of disc one, Squall actually is killed by Adia on the float, and then the rest of the game is sort of his chemical fever dream in the throes of death before he actually dies i have not heard that but i actually am um, i actually just finished disc one i'm playing eight right i'm playing nice. eight right now the remix or the remake the hd remake right, right. and i just finished disc one so i'll play through it like that the main proponents of this are that like the first disc is very low-key it's a pretty straightforward story the mm -hmm. fantasy elements are sort of played down like there's magic and there's summons and stuff like that mm -hmm. but the really crazy story details and aspects and twists and stuff don't start happening until later so right there's there's a lot of things that come together like cypher has a complete turnaround of like sort of being a rebel to then doing this like really romanticized night thing and there's That's just a lot of stuff, so look it up online if you're interested. I definitely will. I'm gonna, I'll keep that in mind while I'm playing and see what I think by the end. Cause I've played it, you know, a few times throughout my lifetime. And I played it one, one the first time that I replayed it was when I was in college and I had like a serious girlfriend at that time. And I remember disliking it when I was younger. Like I played it, mm -hmm. I played it when I was like maybe 
eight or nine. And then I played it again when I was in, and I really didn't like it. I don't think I even like finished it because I got to the um, the cave where you can't get experience anymore. So if you're at a too low of a level, you just can't beat the entire game. <laughs> oh, no. So I was stuck in the cave and too low of a level because I didn't like the random battles. Mm-hmm. So then I played it again in college and I realized that it was way too deep about love for me to yeah. even be able to comprehend or care about it at that time when I was so young. And then playing it again, I was like, man, I love this game. Like this game is really, really good. So now I'm playing yeah. it again and I'm going to see what I think about it this time, which is it's cool. It's just like reading a book, man. Yeah, it's I don't know. Some of the characters felt one note, but then you're mm-hmm. like, oh, it's because they have depth that is revealed <laughs> as the story goes on. And right. Squall is, you know, a pissy little bitch, but mm-hmm. it's because he cares too much and he's afraid to let people get close to him exactly. because he's been hurt so much. Exactly. And, See, oh, it's it's so good. Poor See? little fella. The, ri- the writing was so good back then. And, you know, that's something that I really miss about Squaresoft games and the golden era of Squaresoft was they had to use their imagination and we had to use our imagination to come up to fill in the parts that you know that the story didn't tell tell us and then the parts that the graphics didn't fill in for us it made for a much better story and we got to do more work which made us feel like we were more invested in the game in my opinion yeah I miss old Squaresoft but gotta move forward on on the heels of that Mm -hmm. What is your favorite Final Fantasy or what's your favorite Squaresoft RPG? And if you could pick one of those to have a modern remake, which one would it be if you wanted it to have one? Mm. Having the answer of I don't want it to be remade is completely valid. <laughs> so I have like a I've got a love triangle with uh, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy 4 and Final Fantasy 6. Those are like just my you know, ones that I can play over and over again. But yeah, they're an excellent vintage. They, they are. But I do think that for like the time that it came out and as far as like the overall mechanics of it and the story and everything involved, I think Chrono Trigger is probably my favorite Golden Era Squaresoft game. I that's, believe yeah. that's, that's like off the top of my head. Definitely. I think that six, if six was remade, in today's time, I think it would be fucking epic. I think that yeah. with all of the characters and the story, I think that it would be insane. I also think that like you could do four as well, since it's more based, since it's more like a Shakespearean kind of love, war, friendship type thing. I think that that would be a very cool type of remake. But I think mm-hmm. that six would be like a blockbuster, like huge hit in my opinion. Four, four Such would be a more huge like world. a love. The ensemble cast, the music, yeah. the opera. Oh, oh, right. Oh. Yeah, yeah. The opera. My alone. heart. <laughs> the opera alone would be, you know, insane. I, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, but I wish that there was somebody. I wish there was just a team of people who were like, you know what? Fuck selling. You know how much we sell of this. Let's make like an epic remake of Final Fantasy VI and just do it huge. Like, I mean, the budget that people have for you know new games and stuff. Nobody's willing to take a chance on something like that, even though it has a built-in fan base. It's obviously not as big as Seven, but it'd be cool if somebody was just like, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, It might work, you know, you never know. It's a remake, not quite in the same sense that we're talking about, but there is a remake of Final Fantasy IV on the original DS where mm-hmm. they redid it with like 3D graphics and stuff, and mm-hmm. it's the same story with some minor additions and 
and all that. I don't have you ever played that or the, seen that? The After Years too. No, there's also the After Years. Yeah, I believe I played like the like whatever the final version where they put everything together in like a compilation. Okay, cool. I played that on like the PSP, I think. Okay. I believe, but then there was also like a phone version in Japan that I played. Oh, okay. And that, was, that was really cool. Yeah. So like, there's you know, there's a lot of like Final Fantasy, like Japan exclusive Final Fantasy stuff yeah. over here that's pretty cool. And I've tried to play as much of it as possible. That isn't just like a huge money suck as far as like yeah freemium gaming. But the After Years I really liked, and I liked the remake a lot too. That was that felt like I was just playing through like a game that. I loved and like an updated version of it, which is always, I'm a huge fan of that if I love the yeah. original game. So clearly as somebody who loves more the ensemble cast, which was one of my favorite aspects of Final Fantasy VI was you had like 14 to 16 playable characters and getting to see like there was no main character in that sense. Have you ever played the Sweet Odin series, specifically one and two? I have not. That's one that I've never played that a lot of my friends in Japan have played that they've told me you have to play it. You have to play it. I love Sweet Odin. It's the classic. The first one's good. The second one is like a, a complete masterpiece. The music's amazing. The combat's very traditional, but has a few unique twists. Uh -huh. The story is grand and sweeping. It's about war and rebellion and friendship and destiny versus choice and all that good stuff. And there's a, a massive ensemble of characters where it's a, the, the 108 stars of destiny, and it's got a base building aspect where you your stronghold gets base building aspect. <laughs> uh, your stronghold keeps getting bigger, and you can recruit people for different stuff. Like a dude to build an elevator is a, a unique character with a portrait, nice. and somebody to raise the livestock, and a chef with a cooking mini game, and so like, like 50 real JRPG like aspect. Oh yeah, dude, this is like, like hardcore whew. traditional JRPG. Yes, it's amazing. Uh, it was on awesome. PlayStation One. I think you can find it on there. Cool. online network or download version or something but i'm gonna the, look it up the, the coolest aspect was if you play the first game you have a save file right at the end you can import that into the second game and then you can recruit the main character from the first game as a party member in the second game which god, blew, my, so cool. blew my goddamn that's, mind that's like, pretty that's pretty cool because storyline like it's it's a few years later and you're in a different region of the wow. world but the stories are still tangential and some of the characters are the same between the games so you can like recruit people that you had in the first game in the second game or maybe like their descendants or things like that so that's my sweet code and tangent it's the best JRPG that too few people have played. The first game is good. The second game is incredible. I'm going to have to check it out yeah. then. If we're going back to like your music process, mm -hmm. do you have any headspace rituals that you have to like go through to clear your brain out before you start working? Or are you more of like a just, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to crack something out kind of mindset? Usually, yeah, that's how I am. But there's times where I go through like a month or two where I can't like make anything and I don't even like I know that if I put on like a record and listen to some music it would cause me to want to make music but like the even the like wanting to listen to music has to be something that I'm willing and like wanting that I feel like doing um, at that time because that's a big mood <laughs> yeah I just don't like forcing anything and I when I force music even if it comes out good it doesn't feel good and I can't I don't feel maybe that it's not like you know 
some things are very selfish when it comes to like uh, being an artist where like you have to allow yourself to be selfish even if you don't want to feel like that because i know that the music that i make when i'm in like the zone is much better than when i'm sitting down like okay i need to make something today and when i force myself to make something there's a lot of times where i make stuff that i'm like wow this is really good and i like it but the entire reason that you know i I'm an artist is so that I don't have to make music or I don't have to create something unless I feel like, you know, I need to make something. And lately I've, you know, I've been feeling that way. Just, I moved into a new house recently. Uh, me and my wife bought a house near uh, where we were before in Tokyo. And nice. Congrats. Thank you very much. And it's been a huge, like, it's been a lot of work, you know, just getting everything moved in and like setting up the studio and um, all the stuff that goes with moving into a new house. And I, was kind of underprepared, even though I was, thought I was really prepared. Um, but the amount of time that it's taken me to get back into like the mood of thinking I want to make music kind of taken longer than I expected. So I'm trying to slowly do like the business side of things because that doesn't take any creativity. And it's usually stuff that I hate. <laughs> and then right. play some uh, Final Fantasy VIII, which is what I've been, you know, kind of looking forward to as far as like, you know, I'm just not going to make music today because I don't, I'm not feeling it. Mm. So I feel, but I, I do feel like I'm kind of, I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm kind of running from it a little bit though lately. Um, but when the time comes, you can tell. So, and it's not that time yet. So I got to just chill until it is. And... I noticed in myself in the past like year or so, I'll go through different stages of the creative process in that like I edit for work so I'm always going to be editing but as far as what I'm listening to I'll go through either a music phase or a story phase where I'll like punch through a bunch of like story-based podcasts or audiobooks and just like I just consume and I take in the content and then I feel like a little bit more revitalized to tell our own stories and similarly with music I do that a lot more when I'm focusing on our own stuff. The music helps me develop themes and what I've already been working on, if that makes sense. So I make a lot of themed playlists. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because I mean, I, I think that we're, we all get inspired by like, not really, you know, like not reproducing things um, that we've seen or heard, but like inspiration from little parts in it that speak to you. Like there'll be certain things when I put on a record and I hear like the way the guitar is recorded or like the way the effect used on a piano or something. And then that sparks the inspiration for me to try and make something of my own that sounds like that. So of course it's gonna be far from anything that, that I was listening to, but it'll be inspired by that. And that's usually like my main um, way of creation is like when I hear something, I'm like, okay, I got it. Now I know what to do. And I feel like those will feel fresher too. Most definitely. You're like, yeah, this is, this feels good, this feels loose, this feels light. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And it's, yeah, no effort, you know? And, you know, sometimes a lot, almost all the time it takes a lot of effort, but there are times where it's like, wow, that was easy. And that's when some of the best art comes out. In oh, my it's opinion. magic. Mm -hmm. yep. You just feel it come together and you know, you know it's good and you know it's something special and you feel, you just feel it, you know it. Right. Doug, you do a lot of story prep for our podcast and like weaving together these threads that you dropped like seasons ago. And you've mentioned you have just these moments where you're like, well, of course, that's how that fits together. And it just puzzle piece slots in and it's like, yes. 
yeah, problem kind of solves itself because of all these drifting things that are nebulous until mm. they click together. Yeah, it just feels so rewarding. <laughs> it's, it's it's its own kind of magic. The so way the I universe imagine. works sometimes. Yeah, it's there's there's an ebb and a flow, and you can feel it. And yep. sometimes you just. I, I completely agree with everything that you said. It, the the creative process is different for everybody, mm. but it's so it's so difficult to sit down and make yourself produce. And it to me at least, it feels disingenuous. So I become more disinterested, and it takes away a lot of the soul and emotion. So I really need to percolate on a lot of stuff and let it drift until things fit together in a more organic way. Yeah. Our friend Caleb sent me a YouTube video that was a speech, I think it was by John Cleese from Monty, yeah, Monty Python, so. yeah. just about the creative process and creativity in general. And it's it's a great little piece. It was like 20 to 40 minutes long in total. But he talks about how it's been proven that to get into that creative headspace, to do anything productive or to really feel like you're untethered from it, you need to spend like 30 to 40 minutes just not focusing on anything like, you know, get get some quiet time, get time to yourself, just get all those thoughts out and relax. And then once you're sort of in that mindset for a little bit, it's more likely that those things will start fitting together. And after hearing that, I realized that's already what I do because, you know, I like to take a bath. You know, I like baths because I don't have to focus on things and I can just sit there and think about stuff. I obviously can't quite do that the same with the uh, electronic equipment <laughs> I imagine. um but i, I get I'll... nervous every time i take the the switch into the bath and i'm like i can't let this drop while i'm yeah, playing maybe. fucking stardew valley <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the creative process is uh, is interesting that way so it's it's cool to hear how different people interpret it but also there's a lot of familiar crossover there and i think it's easy for fans to tell when something's uninspired and i think it's very easy to you know when you put something out if it's if the quality's lacking or if it just sounds like you didn't really try i wouldn't like i i refuse to have something like that on my discography because that will follow you forever mm -hmm. as a musician it's just like if it's okay to have fun with stuff but it's never okay to not like do your best or n not make sure that it's like mixed properly or mastered properly like so if I'm not in the mood where I can feel like I can do that, then it's best to just not do it that day. You know, uh, there's my yeah. anime pro tag. I got to do my best. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with that. And your your discography is so expansive in terms of different styles. And I mean, just hearing you talk about it and how it's influenced by what you were doing at that time in your life, which it's feels- It's like a set piece from your own life. Exactly. And it's it, very it personal. feels like a very obvious statement, but it's very true. But you have a just a wide swath of different styles. Like I was listening to the very first album that you put on a couple days ago even. And you know, it is more of the, the underground hip hop scene. And then your very next one that you made when you were at college is where a lot of the Eastern influence starts coming in. And I think that is- far more prominent, you know, as time goes on. Right. But even stuff like Pink Lemonade has a completely different oh, feel. Oh, God, I love Pink Lemonade. It's, it's a great little album because it's so different than yeah. a lot of what's on there. You know, it's very light. It's very refreshing, like a brunch champagne or a mimosa or something I like did that. use that album heavily while we were doing a story arc at a basically a cyberpunk resort. Yeah. And it was it was perfect. It was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's, it was, it was, that's funny because that that was kind of what I was trying to remember when I was trying to think about projects that were like moments in my life. 
that's a very like distinct one because I was flying back. So like my now wife, when I was seeing her every now and then in Japan, I would fly back and forth while living in Tokyo. And those flights were not cheap. And I would go back every three months, but I'd still be paying rent in Seattle. Yeah. And that was really tough. So my friend from Hawaii named Keenan, he put me on his buddy pass list for Hawaiian Airlines. So I would show up. Oh, awesome. And I would, you know, if there was a spot left, I would get to fly on there for like a minimal fee. So I was going from Seattle to Hawaii to Japan, which is like completely out of the way of each other. Um, It's like six hour flight and then six hour flight when Seattle to Japan is like just an eight and a half hour flight. So I was riding Hawaiian Airlines like five to seven times a year for like two to three years. So I got very familiar with the way they talk and like the (laughs) the whole spiel they go through for like all their first time people to Hawaii where they're, you know, just massive tourists uh, who've never even been outside (laughs) of their small town and then they take a trip to Hawaii. So it's, it's funny how they, you know, everything stays the same. And then when something changes, like, oh, that's a, that's a new line on there. Like that's a new video they're playing. (laughs) So I got to the point where I would be listening to like the captain talk and I got, (laughs) I was like, I can just mimic this guy's voice. And that was one of the skits on Pink Lemonade. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that's what I always think. That's what the guy exactly sounded like. I, 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 I had memorized everything that they say when they're starting their descent into Hawaii. <laughs> it's the same thing every single time. And then you know I would get there, and uh, Shingo too lived in Hawaii at that time. He'd come pick me up from the airport, and we'd go around and hang out in Honolulu, and then he'd take me back to the airport, and then I'd go to Japan. But that whole time, you know, like I had friends in Hawaii from who had gone to Seattle University where I went to school. Every time I'd, you know, touch down, I'd go hang out with them and, you know, hang out on the beach and do like non-touristy Hawaii stuff, which is really cool because I, I try not to like be too much of a tourist when I go to places. Like if I know somebody, um, I, I prefer to go, you know, see things that are local just if I can. But that whole album was very much like just based on the feeling that I had when I was in Hawaii and like going back and forth. And then also when I would touch down in Japan and things are completely different, you know, like, cause there's a lot of Japanese tourists too, that go to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So it was funny to see also see the difference between like American tourists going to Hawaii and then Japanese tourists going to Hawaii. So it was <laughs> a lot of fun back then, but I would, I take direct flights now. I can't. I can't do that. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Seattle to Japan is a heck of a long distance relationship. That yeah. definitely was. Yeah. That that's really cool. I love hearing the the personal stories. But we always wondered about Pink Lemonade because uh, it has that you know light, bubbly, refreshing feeling to it. Mm-hmm. But there is that sting where you're speaking as the flight announcer. It's just it's so out of left field, and it's such a departure from like all of your other songs that it always sticks out in my brain. But we love it so much. When we record our our show, oh th- fuck, we forgot to mention this. Our main show is Neon Heat, and we started recording that about three years ago. But when we got our initial recording set up, I was like, okay, well, Neon Heat is going to be the big one. So I want to run something for Doug that is a good way to test the equipment. And it turned out to be a series we very immediately knew we wanted to call Absolute Zero. 
And then several <laughs> months later, we found your music. And I was like, what the fuck? Wow. Is absolute zero? It what was the hell? wild. I didn't even realize that until months or maybe even a year into it. But I think crazy. I saw it on your Bandcamp page. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And we looked at each other like, are you fucking kidding me? So what? it was just kind of one of those serendipity sort of things. Yeah. Wow. It was cool. The, the universe coming together and clicking. It was really cool. So that's really special. That's how you know you're on the right path. Whenever you get those <laughs> right? like, little moments of serendipity, it's like, okay, cool. I mean, I'm on the right path and I can just keep going because this is where I'm supposed to be. That's how I always yeah. Absolutely. But, but when we record Absolute Zero, we just listen to basically your discography <laughs> playlist and it, awesome. it works Thank beautifully you. every time. But we go through about like the whole playlist every time we record and wow. <laughs> every That's time awesome. the Pink Lemonade uh, interlude comes up. <laughs> In the vocal start, where we just take a beat and we're like, <laughs> hilarious. To listen to it and laugh. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, we we listen to it and we use it, you know, as the the background music and the app, the actual show itself. But and we really can't thank you enough. Like it um, has made the world feel so much more lived in, and it has this soul that I don't think we would have been able to achieve with just our our two nerd voices. Yeah, no, it it in, it just infuses personality and spirit and dynamic themes, and I don't know. It's we've listened to your full discography so much that. Like, I have favorite songs that I can pull by name because I make sure I know the names do of my it, favorite songs. Wow. But there are so many other songs that blend together. Like, I couldn't tell you the individual name, but I know the beats and the melodies and I could parrot them back uh, super easily. We're, we're jumping around a lot here. There was one quote, and I'm going to come back to this, the favorite songs. You mentioned that you were flying back and forth between Seattle and Japan when you were seeing your wife, when you were dating her. Mm -hmm. And that's something I wanted to ask about. How did you guys first meet? And how did how did all that happen? Um, we first met in 2011 when I did the I did a tour with um, Substantial and a rapper named Megaran and Kay Murdoch. And we did, the, it was the four of us, and it was called the More Bark, Less Biting Tour. Bop, Alloy, Random, K. Murdoch. So we did a couple shows in Tokyo, and then Osaka and Kyoto. This was the year after the Nuja Best tribute, after he passed. So we went there to do our own tour, and my wife was actually a fan who came to the show. After the show, I was waiting in line for like a drink, and she turned around and asked me if I was Marcus D and then asked if she could buy me a drink. I was like, really? This is, this is, <laughs> this is how Japan works? <laughs> so I was like, sure. And she said, and uh, can I buy one for substantial? And I was like, he actually doesn't drink um, anymore. So I'll take his. And then, <laughs> yeah, after that, you know, we, we talked a little bit and she brought like a CD she had of mine. I signed it and then I asked her if she was coming to the, to the show tomorrow, which was like in Kyoto, which is like really far from Tokyo, like four hour, yeah, yeah. you know, four hour uh, Shinkansen bullet train trip. And not knowing, you know, the landscape of Japan at all at that time I was completely oblivious. Thought it was like an hour away or something. <laughs> and this is during the week, which for Japanese people also, you know, it's like hell all week for work and she was at like a really really like oppressive job at that time and she was like uh it's kind of far but uh maybe 
I was like, oh, okay, cool, you know, because I mean, you know, you just talk to people at shows and you don't expect anything sure. to come from that whatsoever. Um, even if somebody's like, hey, we should do a collab or something. She ended up actually like being like, hey, I'm, I bought a ticket to go tomorrow. So can I meet you guys there at like on the train? I was like, yeah, sure. So I sat next to her on the train. I talked to her the whole time. And then we ended up kind of just talking throughout like the tour. That's so sweet. Yeah. And, we got, and then we got back to Tokyo and uh, yeah, I left and we had to show in Taiwan after that. Me and Substantial did. Yeah. Ended up talking to her, continuing to talk to her. And it just kind of slowly, slowly the relationship grew. Um, she was a friend for a long time and then more than a friend. And then now she is my wife. That's so sweet. Been married for about five years now. Who doesn't love a slow burn? <laughs> yeah, you know, I That's learned beautiful. a lot and we went through a lot of different things together through our individual lives at the time. And I, you know, she's a little bit older than I am. So I had some growing up to do and catching up to do. And she patiently waited around for me and was able to make it work in the end, which, you know, I've been in a couple of long distance relationships and they don't always, they usually don't work, at least at that time. I think it's easier now with all the forms of communication, but mm -hmm. there were things that were never easy um, when I was doing long distance relationships. And this one felt different to where it wasn't something where I had to, we had to like talk every day or we had to like check up on each other or it was kind of like the long uh, the long game, you know. You just feel it when it's right, and when yeah. when it's easy, it's it's a completely different feeling. Right. It's it's impossible to describe to people who haven't felt it. Yep. We did long distance for one year of college for me, and by the end of that year, I was like, I I need to be closer. <laughs> I need to figure something out to make that happen, and yeah. we did. And we did, yeah. And and if you can, that's that's I think that's always. Personally, in my opinion, I think that that's the best way to do it. Like, it's just, it's much easier, you know? There's a lot less problems that can come from being far away from each other. Plus, it's just, it's nice to see the person, you know, you care about every day. It's nice to be around yeah. them, feel their energy. And it's, you know, you can't do that um, when you're far away. Uh, when humans are not meant to be secluded or kept away from each other. So people that <laughs> care about, you know? Yeah. There's just something about being in the space with the person that you care about and you just pick up on like the little things that they do and you're like, that's adorable. Right. And then you're like, I'll file that away for later when I'm feeling down. <laughs> do you two have any pets? Uh, we actually just got a half Corgi, half Sheba puppy. Oh, oh my gosh, I bet it's so sweet. <laughs> I've had a few dogs throughout my life and she's definitely one of the cutest dogs I've ever seen. She was a shelter rescue. Some people like, she had like four or five brothers and sisters. They were, this lady actually like goes and saves like a bunch of animals at like different shelters and brings them to her house. We went to her house to like look at the dogs because my wife was like, I want to go, you know, look at this dog. We don't have to get one. I was like, really? Like we're just moving into, new, into a new house and like we're gonna go look at dogs. And she's like, yeah, I just want to go look. And I was like, yeah, right. Like, if we go look, you're gonna, we're bringing home a dog. Like, I know how this works. I was, I was, I was a kid once. My, I was the one who was begging for a dog when I was a kid, and that's exactly how it went down. So I know how this works. But we ended up <laughs> yeah. going, and I wanted like her brother, but I'd never had a male dog before, and I was like, you know what? He's kind of aggressive already. 
And then the other daughter, her name is Biska. Um, she Biska? she was like really nonchalant and like in her own world. Like she really was just like, <laughs> like she'd look up and like look around and then just like plop down on the floor and like just chill. And she's <laughs> Aww, been this, and so I was so like, sweet. this this looks like you know the like this is the dog for sure. I was like, I want, chill I kind of want the Yeah, boy, it's a dog you like, can chill with. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what she is. Like, she's really, really calm. Like, she's, you know, we've had her since she was like two months old. And from the very beginning, she would just hop up on the couch and like, just fall asleep. And she still does that. Like, she doesn't, causes hardly That's a good any dog. trouble at all. Like, just hasn't, she chewed on like two things. She's already potty trained like after like a month. So, I mean, she's, yeah, she's great so far. And she's been a lot of help as far as like emotional support and like bringing the mood up a lot you know when it's just me and my wife you know it's kind of lonely for a while it's great to have a dog and she's like the perfect dog so pets really do bring that just i don't know the the silent but not silent companionship where yeah. like you know what they're saying to you when they look at you or when they make a little noise mm -hmm. and you're just like oh yeah. You're so sweet. Does she give you feedback on your music? Like, is she going to be your new EP? She She's going to be, like, as soon as she learns to not piss on my new carpet, <laughs> she'll be she'll be a great studio dog. <laughs> she, she, she came in and I thought that she was past the point where, you know, she was, like, not doing that anymore. But sure enough, my wife brought her into the studio um, and she started, like, walking around. And, you know, we were watching her, like, super close. And then she like turns and looks at me and then just squats <laughs> down on my soup, no. my brand new carpet that I was like, no. it was a gift from um, Pace Rock, who did a lot of stuff. Oh, shit. He, he gave me a, gave me like a housewarming gift. It's like a 1970s-esque shag carpet in the form shag of like carpet, a crocodile. Yeah. crocodile. It's like Great a crocodile. for sound dampening too. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, I was like, no. Bisco, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, oh. but she yeah she's I mean she's good now she hasn't done that in a long time so I'm slowly getting like ready to bring her into the studio and give her like I'm, I'm probably gonna put like a little bed in here or something for her to chill. So. Oh, I bet she'll love Sounds that. Very sweet. Yeah, she's a good dog. So I'm 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 really happy. Like you know because you just really don't know what you're gonna get, especially with um, like a shelter dog and you don't know what kind of breed they are and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so we got kind of got the jackpot as far as that goes. So. I'm very, very happy. We're both very happy. Is your studio space a rental space or is it in your house now? How do you how do you like to work? It's in my house. Yeah, I kind of came up during like the home studio era when that was first becoming like the thing to do. And I always wanted like a home studio. But I noticed that it got kind of difficult for a long time to separate work from being home. And that's mm -hmm. it's very, very dangerous to like mental health. So if you know how to like partition it then that you know that's great if you're a person that can do that then it's very convenient but for me i tend to like feel like if i'm not working i'm not being productive and if i'm not being productive then i feel like i'm useless so i've wanted to get like a rental studio um, and i did until i moved into this house and then i was able to actually build the studio that i wanted and the coolest thing about this room is that there's a loft in the same in this room oh that's so, awesome so what i've done is i basically turned the bottom you know the main room into the studio and then the loft upstairs is just complete no music just chill video games 
blue light, <laughs> everything relaxing <laughs> that you can find. Nice. I've been playing Final Fantasy VIII up there and watching old movies and stuff. And there's a, I got a bookshelf and full of books that I haven't read yet that I need to read. And it's kind of, it's turning out to be like the perfect division of labor and relaxation. So I think that I can do this without having like a rental studio. Cause I was thinking about like, being like, I, I need to get a rental studio because I don't know if I can keep working from home. Because I've been working from home for like 17 years now. You know, it worked out well in the pandemic because I was like a pro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you were like, I'm, I'm already ready. I'm I got it. I've, can I get I've, some takeout, please? It was like the, uh, the uh, Batman Bane um, speech being born and <laughs> bred in the born. darkness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I recently found out that apparently they had to redub all of Tom Hardy's Bane lines because they recorded it through a fucking mask the first time and the audiencers were like, we don't understand anything Bane said. Yeah, during the test, we just imagine him <laughs> Yo, and he's already notorious for being terrible. Yeah, exactly. Why didn't they put a, like a mic in the mask? Because it's Christopher Nolan and he, he like, I've like I actually read an, I read an article about how, like, he did that. He does that on purpose. Basically, he, he's like, well, in World War II, they didn't have microphones up to their mouth. So why would you be able to hear him so clear? And that was hmm. his, that was his reasoning for, like, thing like dialogue being muffled in 1942 and, like, all this, you know, um, in uh, the other one. But there's a lot. I've heard this whole article about him being like terrible to work with for engineers. Oh, the mixing engineers. It's my vision. Fuck you. <laughs> and then Tom Hardy's also like notorious for being terrible at delivering his lines. Like he just <laughs> shit. Oh poor fucker. <laughs> Perfect shit storm. Yeah. So like oh, they were comparing about how like this generation of actors don't even pronounce or enunciate or anything because it just they're like, oh, you can do it in post. <laughs> but then all of the engineers in post are like, well, yeah, if we have like a decent, you know, audio file to work with, we can. But if you're just like stuttering shit and mumbling things and, you know, it's only as good as the original source. So you want better so you've taste, heard of you mumble rapping. Now we've got mumble acting. <laughs> it's perfect. It all fits. Our friend Sydney sent me a video about, oh shit, what is the movie's name? My Girl Friday. It's the one we watched with Alex and Caleb a while back. Do you remember that? Is it My Girl Friday? I'm not sure. It's an older black and white one. Oh, yeah, okay. But it's a lot of New York in the 20s, like fast uh, talking yeah, yeah. reporters. <laughs> and I was... Ah, you know what you're doing here, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it. the dialogue is so snappy and apparently they just told them to like improv most of the movie with like beats that they just went through but the audio was so clear and mm -hmm. people were like not sure how they were achieving it back then when they shot it and apparently they had one sound mixer everybody had mics on them and they were manually switching up and down levels through the live conversations and it sounds wow. perfect wow i have wow. no idea like the skill that one person needed to have right and they had it like 12 hands i can't, yeah just <laughs> yeah. like both hands maybe a foot who knows <laughs> mozart on a mixer crazy that's great but i i think i want to revisit that movie with that tidbit of behind the scenes <laughs> knowledge on the note of older cinema, you like very early on in our conversation, you talked about how you got very into Asian cinema. Mm -hmm. 
For people who aren't as familiar with classics, do you have any personal favorites or recommendations that you'd tell yes. people to go and watch? I do, and I need to remember the names of them because um, there were a lot of like very formative films that I watched during that class that I took, and they were really, really good. And a lot of they always had like some crazy philosophical reasoning to them by the end where you felt like, wow, that's like an amazing way to you know think of things. So some of them were super profound and like they changed my life at that time. I think there was one that was called The Yellow Line. Okay. I mean, Old Boy isn't, you know, that wasn't like a philosophical one, but Old Boy was a great old 2000, 2000s one. That's one that I've heard come up so much and it's on my list of stuff to watch. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. So thankfully I haven't been spoiled, but I know it's a... I know it's one of the greats that is held up there. Definitely. Old Boy is a must watch. The original, not the... Didn't they do like a remake? Yeah, they did the the English one with like Josh Brolin. Mm, um, definitely, okay. Definitely, definitely, definitely well, don't watch I'll make one. sure to watch the original. Yeah, watch Goonies the original. brother, Josh Brolin. <laughs> <laughs> the Seven Samurai is always... That's a classic. Mm -hmm. Is that the one that you equated to Mass Effect 2? Yeah, and Seven Samurai is one that I've only seen parts of. Man, I'm, I'm having a lot of uh, cinema crimes here, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's a team builder, right? Like God, they gather these builder. seven yeah. unique samurai, and they're the whole purpose is they're going to defend the small village from a group of bandits. Oh, they all have different skill sets, right? Basically, yeah, it's cool. theming. I'm I'm a sucker for theme. I mean, Mega Man. We talked about Mega <laughs> Man. Like, come on. <laughs> yep. It's yeah. It's a great movie. They did an anime of it actually called. They switched it around and called it Samurai Seven, and <clears> I like I loved it. It was like a sh pretty short anime. Uh, I think it was like 24 episodes, 36 maybe. That was amazing. It was like an updated like cyberpunk kind of version of Seven Samurai. That sounds, sounds awesome. That sounds right up early. It was, it was really cool. I was surprised because I, you know, I went into it thinking like, oh, really? Like they're going to try and do this? But the way they did it, the way they approached it was really unique. And that's what made it so like really cool. Oh, um, Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog was one that we actually watched. Um, no, it's Forrest Whitaker? Forrest Whitaker, yep. Forrest Whitaker and the, the RZA did the soundtrack. So Ghost Dog. That one's been on my list too. I've never seen it. Ghost Dog is Man, really we, cool. Man, we didn't watch any good movies in my cinematography class in college. <laughs> we were just like, you want to see Citizen Kane again? And I was like, not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thanks. So two things. Have you ever seen Ninja Scroll? I have not. Okay. Are you a fan of the Metal Gear franchise? I missed it when I was early on. I, I watched my I watched my brother's friend play it, and that was as far as I ever got. I never it's never got into classic. It. I know. I, I feel like I I feel bad that I missed out. Like I, I actually do feel like I missed out on it. I was actually a very late comer to the franchise in that I hadn't played a single game. And then Doug was like, well, do you want to watch like the cutscene movie compilation? Because it's like it just cuts out like stealthy gameplay and you get all the story there. And I was like, yeah, right. it sounds like a great time. I fell in love with this series through the cutscene really? movies. Like yeah. it's such top tier anime soap opera bullshit. Yes. It's exactly my brand. So over the top and good. But it's it's a. Uh... Ninja Scroll was one of the inspirations and the basic, oh, it? yeah, the basic elevator pitch for the the theme of the series and the the storytelling is there's the lone wolf protagonist who has a special mission that they have to go and do against 
a cell of enemies and each one of the enemies has a different theme or specialty or weapon or power or whatever uh, so ninja scroll is in a 90s anime right. where the guy is a ronin finds out that there's this group of bandits that's being led by this guy that he thought he killed years ago so he takes it upon himself to go back and basically take out their entire group and it's theming and very Mega Man adjacent so have to check it out i, I mean i obviously yeah. know what ninja scroll is like a lot of people love ninja scroll I think it might have been too early for me, actually. Um, I've I didn't see it as a as a kid. I yeah. saw it maybe two years ago, and I'd oh. never heard of it until yeah, somebody it, like popped like, onto Hulu at some point. We were like, so "There's still there's still time for me." So I remembered one of the one of the films from the Asian cinema class called Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. This was also 2003. It's a South Korean film. It takes place in like a monastery that floats on a lake in a forest um, and it's basically just about the life of a monk like a buddhist monk as he passes through the seasons of his life from like childhood mm -hmm. to old age and then the spring at the, like it's called spring summer fall winter and spring spring is like the rebirth in buddhism that yeah. buddhists believe in so it was that was like a really really cool by the end i was like damn that was heavy but it, like it was not in like a you know like a sad way just like life way so i definitely definitely recommend gives you a, a touch of the existentialist yes yes <laughs> definitely does <laughs> it's funny because one of the like one star reviews is there was hardly any dialogue at all during the first half of the movie except for a cute little six-year-old and 10 minutes later he's a grown man <laughs> <laughs> well, <What? laughs> uh, well there's no place oh, in some people man. yeah <laughs> Some people aren't the target audience. No and... gunfights or car chases. <laughs> nothing blows up. Where's Michael Bay? One star. I know that we go through anime phases when we're in like content consuming cycles and we'll be like, yeah, we could put on Naruto and watch the first four seasons in two days again. Why not? <laughs> We've been rewatching Yu Hakusho oh, nice. off and on and we're still like halfway through the dark nice. tournament. I like... I love Yu Yu Hakusho. It's a show that I watched like when I was in like elementary school on yeah. Toonami's after school yes. block. God, Toonami was very, very formative for me as a yeah. <laughs> as a small a small girl getting interested in drawing and reflected itself in my art for a very long time, probably still today. But I just love how extra Yu Yu Hakusho yeah. is. Like they're just there to punch people and have a great time doing it. <laughs> And I'm for it's so it. cool. Like that that's that and uh Joni Kenshin are my my top two anime of all time that are like my favorite that I rewatch all the time and that I think are like classics, you know, as, as far as like nineties anime oh, goes. Yeah. They're ones mm -hmm. that I, I I literally just finished watching Yu Hakusho last month when at the end of moving out there <laughs> we had like our other place until the end of the month while we were moving into the new place so that we would you know wouldn't have to like rush on things and we could go back and forth and kind of do stuff so like the last trains end at like 12:30 here in Tokyo so if you're stuck somewhere you miss your last train you either have to take a really expensive taxi back or you just gotta stay there till the first train starts so there were times where i would be at the arcade until late and then i would be able to make it back by taxi to like my old place because it's a little bit closer and i had literally just we left like the mattress and then a tv and an apple tv connected to it and i watched the show from like the beginning 
all the way to like the end by the end of the time. Nice. So by the time we moved out, Yu Hawk Show, so the cool. very last episode, was playing while we were like vacuuming and cleaning out the last of our stuff. And then when we left, we unplugged the TV and brought it with us. And it was like a summer day. And I feel like I need to capture that in like a in a song as I'm thinking about it because that's like a very distinct memory. It's a core like, memory. Smile now. bomb is. is, 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 is in, yeah, oh my god! What a slap! <laughs> I mean, I sing it at karaoke every time we go. Oh, yes, like, yes. that makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> I never watched Yu Yu Hakusho uh, when I was younger because my general exposure to anime was much lower until I was an adult. So mm. I had never seen Yu Yu Hakusho until like maybe this last year, and I, we yeah. still haven't finished it because I'm a chronic restarter. Like we get distracted, and then I'm like, yeah. well, what if I just started from the beginning? Because I want to experience <laughs> this again. But Kuwabara, what an inspiration. He's like the epitome of dumb antagonist who immediately becomes a friend and is just this scamp with a heart of gold. Low smarts <laughs> character, scamp with a heart of gold, and he captured my heart pretty quickly. Great character. I love Genkai. Genkai's very cool. She's just such a ball buster. <laughs> She's like, I know you're 14. I don't give a shit. Nut up. And he's like, I guess. It's like I'm this hyper muscular 14. That's classic anime. Hyper muscular 14 year old beating up adults. Yeah. Would you say that Yu Yu Hakusho is your favorite anime? Do you have a favorite anime? So I think that actually my favorite of all time is Rurouni Kenshin. I think the writing is like a lot better than Yu Yu Hakusho. Like Yu Yu Hakusho is like cool and it's like fun as shit. It's an arena fighter. Yeah, it's the classic shonen jump. Mm -hmm. Friendship, fighting. There's times where I'm like, man, no way. Yu Yu Hakusho is definitely my favorite anime, like, ever, right? When I'm watching it. And then when I go back and watch Rony Kenshin, I'm like, yeah, but Rony Kenshin's like, it's it's a little bit deeper. And, like, the character development on, like, non-main characters is, like, a little bit deeper. And, like, his story has more depth to it than Yusuke's does. Mm -hmm. It just switches based on what I'm watching. But I think those two usually stand out as, like, my two favorite. I really liked the live-action movies of Bironi Kenshin. I watched them as they came out in Japan, and I've never seen any live-action anime film actually done properly, and then to be done, like, to that level that they were doing was... The new ones, like, they're, you know, they're just money cash grabs, but, like, they still are decent quality, and they follow the script of, like, the original manga and the anime and stuff, so... I'm a big fan of it, and I like the actor. I think they did a good job with that. And now they're coming out with the live action Yu Yu Hakusho, and I'm like... Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, we saw some of the cast pictures, and I was like, yeah, that guy could be a good Kubara. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always, like, kind of, you know, leery about Netflix touching anime, live action, anything. Oh, shit. Yeah, because they made those Full Metal Alchemist movies, and we haven't yeah. watched them yet, but Brotherhood is my favorite anime. God, I love Brotherhood. Every time I watch it, I only get like an episode arc in because I get so incredibly inspired and I just want to start go working on stuff. It's very tight storytelling, very dynamic. They they don't yeah. pull punches on stuff. It's, I really like the world building aspect. So so many kick-ass ladies. So many kick-ass That's ladies. always the one that I tend to forget about where I'm like, when I think of my favorite anime, because like, I watched the original one that came out and like it, it was so weird. Like, because when I was a kid, it ended like really weirdly and yeah. like what the what the fuck happened like where where did the story go like what's going on and then brother and then brotherhood came out and you know i watched it and i was like wow this is like this answers so many questions and yeah it's amazing i missed the boat on raroni kenshin 
-hmm. and the only major frame of reference I have for it is that I know the theme song and my ah. iconic. It it's so powerful. So that's a huge endorsement for me. And now I I definitely want to go and watch it and be able to catch up on that. I randomly started rewatching it because we ordered like the cable, Japanese cable that they have, kind of like Comcast or whatever. Mm -hmm. We have like a an SSD that can record from the TV. So I just, I saw the Rony Kenji. They played Death Note for like the, the whole summer months. And I watched that oh every night from like, they'd play it from like 9 p.m. and then they play it again at 2 a.m. and they played two episodes in a row. The cool thing that Japanese TV does with this is they play it all the way to the end of the anime. Like they'll play it from the first episode all the way to the end and then they'll switch shows. And then cool. I switched to Ruoni Kenshin and I was like, oh man, this is so cool. So I just started recording it. So it's set to record like every time it plays and I'm just watching through it like that. And it's, it's bringing me back like to basically when I started watching it in high school and I've watched it so many times since then and it still holds up and it's, it's kind of just like really wholesome, but really like deep and not. Like it, they put, they have it on the kids' channel, which I can see how that would work. Oh no! <laughs> but but we're talking about Japanese kids here who who watch, you know, a lot of kind of sus anime and exposed to a lot of stuff like that. So I'm like, eh, I guess it works. A lot of anime is kind of sus. Yeah, going back, like even watching Yu Hakusho, I was like, man, oh, there's yeah. some stuff in here that. Uh, language choice and actions of characters that is highly suspect. <laughs> I'm like, yeesh. Yeesh. This, and then that passed on American TV, you yeah. know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. F fuck, 30, I don't even know. <laughs> 25 years ago. What is time? It's an illusion. When you mentioned Shonen Jump in middle school and a bit into high school, I actually had the mail subscription for those because I was like, oh, I can't wow. miss I can't miss a month. What if I don't get to borders? I can't drive yet. What if I miss? I'll never know what happens because I didn't know how to pirate stuff on the Internet. I still don't if the government's listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I also had a subscription to like Shoujo Beat. And mm -hmm. I was like at the end of one issue and I was like, oh, man, we're almost with like the, the next issue tease. I wonder what it's going to be. And it was like, Shoujo Beat is discontinuing. This is the last issue. And I was like, wow. why didn't you put that at the beginning? <laughs> wow. Oh, heartbreaking. Oh, no more slice of life for me. They have these stores in Tokyo that have like used magazines and stuff so you can go in and, and like oh think things are kept in like amazing condition here which is why most of the stuff isn't really worth much money because everybody kept it in good condition so it's you know there's less huh, of them interesting. There's, there's more of them so like you know super nintendo games are really expensive in the states if you have like the box and instruction manual and it's like a rare game right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in japan those games there's so many of them and they're in such great condition that they're just dirt cheap they're like 20 bucks it's GameStop's crazy. like, I can give you two cents. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw the um, I saw the um, Shonen Jump magazines of like the issue with Yu Hawk Show in it from like 1994. And it was insane. Like it just looked like the 90s. And I was trying to picture what it would be like being somebody who, you know, subscribed or who bought that at like the convenience store in 1994 and was reading Yu Hawk Show when it came out. Must have been wild. Interesting. Yeah. Really cool to see how Japan's cold. Like people are still, you know, Shonen Jump is still sold at convenience stores and there's still people that go inside and read it while they're taking a break. And it's crazy. It's I know Viz Media, at least in the States in the past couple of years, has 
implemented like a subscription pass, like a pay mm. five bucks a month and you can read unlimited chapters of like anything they have in their catalog, which wow. like that's got to hurt their volume sales. But like the amount of people getting a subscription like that mm-hmm. might outweigh the volumes. I it's going to be people who want the physical copy for collector's yeah, right, purposes right. or to see it on their show, their oh. shelves. But yeah, I'm I'm at the point in my life where. I had we a moved pretty, so many books into this place. We've moved across the country <laughs> enough times with my book collection that I'm just like, nope, never again, never again, <laughs> yeah, not man. doing that. So which, yeah, I'm sure you can relate to having just moved from uh, from Tokyo to the outskirts. Yeah, I got records. I'm like, these are these are heavy. <laughs> <laughs> we are very new record collectors, and oh, nice. two of our three records are yours <laughs> awesome thank you guys so much kieran, i got you that for your birthday you last did. year didn't oh, it oh god the Kier- the kieran album is it's so pretty so pretty it's the the lustrous green like the emerald green just like the dragon scales and the sound is so crisp oh so good thank you so I much i love kieran that means a yeah. lot i think granny's song is my favorite one on that ah that was that was my grandmother that actually was the reason why i was able to play the piano and kind of have my entire career, actually. I was dedicated to her after she passed a couple oh, of years that's ago. that's so sweet. Yep, she would be proud of me. She used to stand, she actually used to stand behind me while I played piano and watch me and like turn the pages for me and stuff. She never, <sighs> she she used to play piano, but she, you know, she never got to the level that when I was playing at and she was always super proud. And she's like, I'm so glad somebody, somebody was able to use the piano and put it to good use. And she was just a really, really great, great grandma. And, so I still have that piano and um, I intend on putting it in my house at some point. That's a great memento of a, of a good memory, you know? Yeah, it is. I had to, had to show some kind of, you know, dedication on that project. Of course. My two favorite on, uh, well, three favorite. I love the Skyliner, Cloudwalker, mm-hmm. and Kieran itself. But awesome. uh, the, the entire Kieran album is, I think, probably... I, I always go back and forth on this because <laughs> I love Melancholy Hopeful. I love Lone Wolf. Mm. I love Melancholy Prequel. And I love Kieran. And I don't know. All, all the albums. I have two of my favorite albums. <laughs> uh, but for you. different reasons and different purposes. Yeah, they're different vibes for different days. What was the inspiration for Kieran as an album? Like, what was, if you can tell us a little bit about that, what was going on in your life that inspired you to do that? So the cover artist, my... Uh, he's called the Horishi in J- Japanese, which is like your, it's not like tattoo artist because it's different, but it's like translates to like your carver. Hmm. I have traditional, they're called wabori, which means Japanese carving tattoos on my both sleeves and then chest in traditional format. And he's like the guy, he's my artist that I've been seeing for like five years now, I think. Maybe almost six now, um, but we've. It, it takes a long time to get all of the you know, the session's done. Like, I think I've spent probably 80 hours upwards of oh my gosh. sessions. So, and then after that, usually me and him go out and like hang out and drink and stuff and have dinner. So we started talking and he was actually a fan of Nujibaz's stuff. That was like when he, <laughs> when I walked into his studio the first time, he had my music playing when he didn't know that it was mine. He didn't know that it was mine. Oh my gosh, that's that's so cool. And I was like, that's my song. And he's like, oh, really? And he's like a very like stoic, non, you know, doesn't give any kind of positive affirmations. 
And he was like, oh, really? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, that's good. I listen to this a lot. And then I was like, yeah, it's crazy. And he's like, oh, I can't believe, like, you know, you're in my studio. This is very cool. This is meant to be. After that, yeah, we just, you know, you spend a lot of time together just, like, you know, working on this thing. And it's, it's a lot of, it's painful and it's a lot of literal, you know, blood, sweat, things like that. Yeah. So, he was working on that and then we were talking one time afterwards and I was like, I'd really like love to have you do like a cover, you know, for one of my albums. He's like, oh yeah, I could do that. What, what do you want like it to be? And I was like, oh, I think like Keating would be cool. And he's like, oh yeah, that would be kind of cool. Like kind of look like the dragon on, you know, your sleeve. And I was like, yeah, we should do that. And he's like, okay, cool. I'll draw something. So he, <laughs> he drew it. And then Swipped he was, out a masterpiece. Yeah. And he was like, so is, is this good? I was like, holy shit, dude. Like, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Like, how, how can I just take this and put it onto like a record jacket? Like, because that's all I want to do. I don't want to mess with this at all. And so I just gave it to my designer. I was like, hey, can you put like Marcus D and Keaton on this? He said, do you want me to just leave it as it is? I was like, yeah. So then I brought it back to his name is Hori Nao, uh, N-A-O. And I said, how does this look to you? And he's like, do you, do you want that like little rice paper like showing on the side? I was like, hell yeah. It's like, that's one of the coolest parts about it is that it's like, this is on real paper. Like you yeah, hand yeah. drew this. And he's like, oh, okay. He's like, that's cool. I was like, yeah. He's like, people like that? It's <laughs> like, yes. Yes. Um, so, Authentic. Yeah. So Especially he, with he, digital art being so prevalent these days. Exactly. I went to school for traditional like hand-drawn animation originally mm -hmm. and I took a printmaking class and one of my favorite things to do for it was picking out the paper that I wanted to make the print presses on, you know, and the the ones with like the most texture I was always drawn to. So like the Kieran album is just like, Mwah, it's so beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, he, he really did an amazing job and I was like, this looks good as is. Let's just use this. It's like, it's... It's so cool, you know, and I'm work actually I'm working on a new project in that same realm and he's working on a new album cover. So um, I, haven't, yes. I haven't announced that or told anybody yet, but that's in the works and hopefully I'd like to have, you know, it out by spring if possible with the vinyl and everything. So hopefully that comes to fruition. Your workflow, you put out such good music so consistently. Like, I feel like I blink and there's a new, at least a new EP from you popping in on my email. And I'm like, such oh, a treat. yes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. so I'm glad you think so. I, I tend to worry about like if I put out too much, you know, or not put oh, out enough. Oh, please never or... worry about oh, that yeah. again. It's definitely your workflow. Oh, give right. us more. It's all so good. Oh, on uh, Leftovers Volume 1, I've been listening to a lot recently. Balcony Jazz, I think, oh, is yeah. my favorite one on there with Blind Lead also. like, awesome. oof. Thank you. Those are literally, like, the reason it's called Leftovers is I just made those on, it's made on an NPC, which is like a analog drum machine from like 2000. Suit so is pretty old, but like all of those were just kind of like sketches that I was working on that I ended up finishing because, you know, I liked them, but they didn't really have like a theme as far as, except for the fact that they were all made while I was looking out my window at what you see on the cover. Gotcha. That's actually my, that was my old view from my studio room. The designer just kind of went crazy on it and somehow oh, awesome. redrew it. And, and the MPC, is that like, is that a smaller, like half keyboard kind of deal? 
MPC is like it's a it's a drum machine made by Akai. The real ones that aren't digital,、mm-hmm. they're fairly big. They have kind of minimal memory inside of them, so it's more like you can save a few songs unless you like upgrade things. But they're very like late '90s, early '90s even for some of the model. But it's all analog, so there's no digital components in it, which is why、oh, yeah. those ones, the leftovers tracks, those sound more not like lo-fi, but low fidelity and lower quality, but warmer. Yeah. Because the bit depth is much smaller. So a lot of people, the low lo-fi was you know is actually based on that quality or trying to attain that quality, but they're using only digital and hi-fi sources, which. Literally is the antithesis of <laughs> what lo-fi and low fidelity is. So it's kind of like running a marathon <laughs> when there's a straight shot on a less windy road. <laughs> yeah, there's no point, you know, and it's not it's not authentic. And I don't think you really make you know、uh, quote unquote lo-fi beats with low fidelity machines because you can't be that. The whole thing about these machines is that they, you can't move things like to the very minor detail. So a lot of times the mistakes or like the offbeat things get left in there because it's really hard to edit them out, and it's done live、yeah. a lot of times. So you have a more personal human feel to it, which is something that lo-fi has like it's completely lost since its inception, and it's mostly just kids with loop packs that have、um, <laughs> you know like a, a MIDI keyboard. There's not much uniqueness or originality involved in it anymore. It's more about trying to get on playlists and things like that. So for me, the leftovers was more just like here. You know, I made these beats. I thought they were pretty cool. I made them a long time ago, and they need to get out. So here you go. But I was thinking about you know making vinyl for it or something. But I think there's other projects that need to be pressed on vinyl before that one. Well, I'd like to see it on a vinyl anytime. Ending stuff would just be generally. What aspect of your own music do you love the most, or are you most? What proud sparks of? joy for you? For me, it's a double-edged sword where it's actually the thing that frustrates me the most. But then I, when somebody forces me to see it in a different perspective, I realize that it's actually a strength, not a weakness. Is that I don't sound like anybody else. As far as if you hear something, most of the time people can tell that I made it. Doesn't、mm-hmm. sound like any other artist or producer that does stuff. So like that makes has made it difficult for me to get like placements with major record labels or do things within a certain range that sound similar where people want it to sound like lo-fi and I don't want to do that. So you know sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But the thing that I'm most proud of is that I sound like me and nobody else. You know obviously there's influences that I have. But the amalgamation of all those influences is what makes me sound like me, and that's definitely what I'm most proud of. You have a very distinctive sound. Like when we're when we're listening together, like in the car going somewhere on Spotify, and it ends an album and auto feeds somebody else, and we don't even have to look. We're like, this isn't Marcus D. Turn it back. <laughs> Turn it back. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Thank you. That's a huge compliment. Yeah. So you know what I mean, though. You know, it's. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's it's an auditory brand. When I first found your music, I was just searching around on YouTube for stuff because I discovered 
I think synthwave specifically. So mm. I was falling down that rabbit hole and it somehow led to you. Interesting. But it just captured me so perfectly because it hit the the smooth jazz hip hop adjacent, but you have the Asian infusion there too, which mm -hmm. was a sound that I'd never heard before. And I immediately fell in love with it and obviously still am and always will be, but it, you have a very unique sound and it has so much soul and personality and it really carries through in, in everything you release, so. Thank you. I think that ties back to what you were saying earlier in that you don't put out something that you're not proud of and you don't want to be heard. And I think the love and care that you put into your music absolutely comes through in every track. That's That makes me very happy to hear because, you know, you can't really tell as an artist, you're constantly questioning how people think of, you know, your music and things like that. So that's that gives me, you know, a little bit more confidence. We're not music history buffs, but we are very genuine music enthusiasts. Yeah, you, know, you know what you like. I mean, if you know what you like, yeah, then, yeah, you know, absolutely. like... And we've been shouting about it for years. Oh, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, we, we shout about you to everybody that we can because everybody should hear it because it's so good. Thank you. I mean, that, that helps so much more than, you know, like people even posting things on. I mean, of course, posting things online, but like just word of mouth is so strong, you know, as far as mm -hmm. introducing people to new music and artists that don't get, you know, on like huge, huge playlists and have labels pushing them and things like that. So I, I really appreciate, you know, you guys even having me on and being, you know, interested in talking with me and it's been a lot of fun. We just love getting to know people. Yeah. And this is, I mean, th this is, was such a fantastic time for us and yeah. getting to know you a little bit better and more about your history. So and it's, it's one of those weird things, right? Where we've been listening to your music for so long and it, on some level, it feels like we know a little bit about you <laughs> because we've heard your music and because right. the soul and spirit of that carries through. Right. And um, especially, but not like a weird parasocial yeah. way. <laughs> not, in a weird, not in a weird parasocial way. No, I mean it, it's it, it's me. You know, like I said, those those things are infused in it. And if you if you listen to my music deeply, then I do feel like you know me on some type of level because that's the most that's the purest form of who I am is when I'm making music. And a lot of that carries through with like hobbies. So, I mean, especially from your retro stuff, we clearly knew that you loved video games on some <laughs> right, right. some influence, but it was very gratifying for me to hear you talk about RPGs and Final Fantasy and yeah. how we have a lot of those same loves and inspirations. And mm -hmm. because a lot of that carried through in the music and I was like, oh, you know, I can, I can clearly hear, you know, influences here. This reminds me of that. So that was, that's really cool and really special to me. And you have Retro 3 coming up, right? I do. I have Retro 3 yes. coming up. When's that dropping? I don't know yet. I, I started working on it when I was moving out of my old house and I had like five tracks and I was on a, I was on a hot streak. I was killing it. They were, nice. They were, I feel like at least those tracks will, like I'm, I need to try and pick it back up like to where, you know, I need to get back up to speed to where I was at there so i can't like just go back cold turkey into making those tracks again i gotta ramp up to the you know where i was at at that energy level right. and you're in a new space you gotta feel out how your new setup is all that jazz exactly but if i can get back to you know that level of those tracks i'll be very happy because they were I, I was really happy with them and i you know i put one of them out um june mermaid from xeno Oh yeah, that one was so good. I, I listened to that on Patreon. Hopefully it gets, hopefully I can get it done soon. I'll probably have it be about 10 to 12 tracks, I think, uh, but I got five, six done so far. So 
hopefully soon i i tend to do that where i get like i have i finish a lot of projects at once and then i'm like shit <laughs> i can't put all these out on the same <laughs> what do i do <laughs> yeah. are there games that you're pulling from for retro 3 there are i have so like right now i'll tell you right now that i have one from super mario world classic yes always and then i have one from couple lesser known games one is from well everybody knows virtual fighter um i have one from virtual mm -hmm. fighter i have one from a game called in japanese called warzard but in english it's called red earth it's on like the fighting game capcom fighting collection that just came out that sounds familiar okay one of the characters had a really cool intro theme and i was like i was playing it and i was like damn this is like really melancholic and really like yeah really dope uh, and then there's one from uh mega man and bass mega man and bass or mm. mega man and forte whatever they call it it's different based on the region but that one's really cool i'm pretty hyped about that one so it'll be a good array of different games i try to make sure that it's not just games that you know i played you know i was trying to give at mm -hmm. least a couple songs that i think people would really you know like and know but I do try and keep it pretty underground, but you know. I think you had a track in one of your earlier ones from Mischief Makers on the N64. I did. Okay, I did. that one was <laughs> like the deepest pull from the <laughs> recesses of my mind because I played that, I rented that game once from Blockbuster and beat it over a weekend and loved uh -huh. it so much. And it had uh -huh. such a, a weird vibe and a great soundtrack that when I listened to yeah. that, I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> Mischief makers of all things. What? Such a weird anime game that like nobody knew what anime was back then, but they were like, hey, let's try out this extremely weird Japanese game and see if it yeah. works. I'm going to find an emulator. And I don't play know that if it did, but please do. I'll watch. <laughs> <laughs> it was that was a, yeah, that, that was, was a fun idea. game. So very last thing that I want to touch on, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I realized mm -hmm. this whole time we do a brand of podcasts called Actual Plays, which are basically audio drama, tabletop RPGs that we're playing together. Do you have any experience with TTRPGs in general? I do not, unfortunately. I wish I did. I would have been into it if somebody had showed me the way. But yeah, unfortunately, I did not. My, my brother's friend my older brother my brother is about seven years older than me um his older friends some of them were into like dungeons and dragons and stuff and when they were young but yeah not myself unfortunately that's how i was i was interested in it when i was younger but had nobody to experience or play it with so i didn't get into it until i was an mm -hmm. adult and you know a couple years ago is when we kind of started in on this but it's pretty amazing, you know, just storytelling together communally and going that way is pretty cool. But yeah. if you're ever interested and you want to get into it or even just have an experience, we'd certainly be happy to run that for you, but no pressure. Sounds pretty cool, actually. We got like traditional Dungeons and Dragons. We play uh, a system called Savage Worlds, which is like it, it has rules, but it's adaptable for like whatever kind of story you want to tell. You're not locked into like one setting like, oh, we're in fantasy land, but like you could do sci-fi or mm -hmm. like hard sci-fi or cyberpunk or like whatever you want to do. It's super versatile and very fun. I dig it. Is there anything that you want to plug as we're winding down here? I have a band camp, MarcusD.net, anything on there. You know, there's a lot of records, CDs, tapes. It is Bandcamp Friday today. It is Bandcamp Friday, so it probably won't be Bandcamp Friday. I appreciate it. Anybody who wants to help artists more so than doing something that's maybe more convenient, paying for anything on Bandcamp, the artist will receive 30 to 40 times more than they would if you streamed that same song 
on Spotify even like a hundred times. Spotify is terrible as far as like giving royalties to artists and things like that. So definitely support the artists directly if you can. Absolutely. Bandcamp Friday makes everything, all the hundred percent of the profits go directly to the artists. Bandcamp does not take their fee on the first Friday of the month. So Bandcamp, MarcusD.net, anything on there, check it out. And also I've been doing a sample pack. Oh, the Omega library, right? Yeah, I've been working on a music library with my partner, uh, Jerson, a couple other musicians. And it's basically just for artists who want to use samples that sound like, you know, records, run everything through analog recording. Everything's composed with full-on, you know, synthesizers from the 70s and 80s, rare synthesizers. So if you want to be able to use samples and make beats and pitch them to artists and things like that and get sync licensing, all that kind of stuff, it's all safe to use. So check out omegamusiclibrary.com if you're a producer. Yeah, I want to use some samples that sound like the 70s and 80s. But other than that, thank you guys for having me on. Feel free to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. It's just Marcus D underscore. Hope you guys look forward to the new music that should be coming out soon. Oh my gosh, and always. We always do. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk to yes, us. Thank you so much for this taking the time to treat. be here. We were really looking forward to this and it was just a wonderful time. So we really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, likewise. Thank you guys so much for having me on and I hope that we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. We'd love that. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you guys.